Okay, everybody, I think it's uh, time to begin. It's uh, 5.30 or so. If you'd like to take your seats, that would be great. Um, welcome to the first meeting of um, the Aristotelian Society for this term. Um, my name's Helen Stewart. Uh, I've just taken over as president, so apologies if I don't get everything quite right this time. It will be very smooth by, uh, by the end of the term, I can promise you. Um, I'm really delighted to be able to introduce for this first meeting um, Professor Glenn Pettigrove. I keep wanting to say Pettigrew, but I'm really pleased that I managed not to say Pettigrew. It is, in fact, Pettigrew. Um, Glenn is Professor of Moral Philosophy at the University of Glasgow, uh, where he has the honour of holding a chair once held by uh, Adam Smith, uh, which is very fitting, I think, uh, given the topics he wants to talk about uh, today. Uh, that's to say, ambition, love and happiness, moral sentiments, if ever there were any. Um, and uh, Glenn uh, came to the University of Glasgow from uh, the University of Auckland, where I think you said, Glenn, you'd spent 12 years, is that right? Prior to uh, coming to Glasgow, where he's, where he's been for uh, about two and a half. Um, I've read half the paper, and I was telling Glenn before uh, we came here um, that it had the quality of a thriller in that I was, I was kind of waiting to see what the end would be. And because I haven't got to the end of it, I don't know what the end actually is. Uh, but I'm very excited to find out. So without further ado, I shall hand over to Glenn, who's going to tell us about ambition, love and happiness. Thank you for coming along. This paper is part of a larger project where I'm exploring different aspects of ambition, which is something that philosophers have been talking about since Plato, but it's something that almost nobody spends more than about a paragraph on. So you can count on one hand, just barely needing to use all of the fingers, the number of papers that are out there that focus on ambition in philosophical contexts. This paper is not one of those papers that began with an argument. You know, sometimes you read somebody's paper and you think, now that can't be right. And an argument takes shape in your mind and the rest of the project is working out the details of that argument. Well, this isn't one of those. This is one of those projects that began with puzzlement. There was a statement that Adam Smith made that just left me going, well, that... That sounds plausible, but why exactly? And so you guys are suffering through my puzzlement. It may be the case that it's not at all puzzling for any of the rest of you, in which case I'll apologize in advance. But my puzzlement emerged out of this quote that Smith borrows from La Rochefoucauld. Before I give you the quote, though, let me first offer a bit of an apology. So the official title is ambition, love, and happiness, but the happiness section of the paper snowballed out of control, and I already was sending Holly way too many words, so I excised most of the happiness bit. So if you really want to find out about happiness, you might have to read somebody else, because I'll only touch on aspects of it. We'll spend most of our time thinking about ambition and love. So here's the thing that set me off. This is La Rochefoucauld's version of it. 
He says, love often leads on to ambition, but seldom does one return from ambition to love. Now, La Rochefoucauld is writing maxims in a rather aphoristic and colorful style, so he doesn't go on to unpack why he thinks this. He just puts it out there, assuming that you will both be persuaded and amused by the statement. But in a much more earnest vein, as he does everything, Adam Smith comes along and he picks up the same thing. Now, not offering it in the kind of jovial tone that La Rochefoucauld does, but quite seriously, suggesting love, says my Lord Rochefoucauld, is commonly succeeded by ambition, but ambition is hardly ever succeeded by love. At least as Smith characterizes it, it's not merely the return from ambition to love, but it's merely any progression from ambition to love that is uncommon. And so I find myself, even though this isn't central to what Smith is talking about, wondering, well, why exactly might that be? So my project for the next few minutes is to try and figure out why exactly Smith thinks it's uncommon for people to move from ambition back to love, even though it's common to move from love to ambition. And to use that as a way into a bigger question, namely a question about the relationship between love and ambition more broadly. Now, some of you may not be hooked merely by the question that emerges out of these quotes I just gave you from La Rochefoucauld and Smith. So for the more mundane among you, let me offer two other reasons not to fall asleep in the next couple of minutes. One reason you might think a project like this is interesting is theoretical. There is a lot of exciting literature emerging having to do with the relationship between particular emotions and value concepts and value properties. There is very little literature at the moment that is exploring relationships between different emotions with one another. Most of the treatment is of a discrete emotion and then another discrete emotion, and then a third discrete emotion. Much less is being done on how these emotions might influence each other, particularly when it comes to thinking about value and the way in which they might disclose or um, produce or generate value. So one reason to be interested in the project is just because it will be a case study in a neglected area, namely the relationship between value-focused emotions and the associated traits of character with one another. A second reason, however, is a practical reason. So if you spend any time reading through the therapeutic literature, you will find that therapists routinely suggest the following. There are two big areas that will fundamentally determine your satisfaction with your life. One of those will be love, and the other will be work. The domains of love and ambition. And there's something to this, right? Not just appealing now to the authority of the therapists. It seems plausible to think that our greatest satisfactions, our gravest disappointments, our most memorable moments will probably be associated with achievements of the aims of love and ambition. And our greatest impact in the world is likely to come from the outworkings 
of one or the other of these. So if you're interested at all in your gravest disappointments, your greatest satisfactions, and your likeliest impact, well, then maybe thinking for a few minutes about the relationship between these two domains will be worth your while. Okay, so let me begin by setting to one side two quick and plausible, but in the end, um, unpromising answers that you might try and give to why it is that Smith and La Rochefoucauld think that you've got this trajectory from love to ambition, but not back again. One possible explanation you might reach for is a simple biological explanation. In your youth, so goes this thought, your libido is strong. With age, that libido wanes. And thus, we shouldn't be surprised that you start off in love, and then as your biology deteriorates or adjusts, take your pick, um, you lose your enthusiasm for love and you begin to turn your thoughts to other things. Now, I say this is a too simple explanation for a couple of reasons. One reason is there are just way too many counterexamples for this to be a plausible explanation of the dynamic. La Rochefoucauld himself entered into his last great romance in his sixth decade of life, and so wasn't of the opinion that in his late 50s, his libido had waned such that he would only be interested in ambition and not interested in love. And if you look at the profit margins for Viagra, that also suggests <laughs> that this isn't the right kind of explanation. Furthermore, it's the case that if you look at the studies that have been done on romantic love in particular, there's this lovely phase called limerence. It lasts anywhere from about three months to roughly two years. And during that period in time, you experience that special in-loveness that goes along with an early romance. And then, if you don't do anything to preserve it, and sometimes even if you do do something to preserve it, it, it tends to fade away, and that relationship, if it matures, replaces that limerence experience with something more companionate in orientation. That's not to say that you don't ever have those magical moments in the relationship once you get past the two-year window. It's just to say that there's a natural cycle to this. And that natural cycle, and here's the important bit, is a cycle that runs its course much more quickly than the fading of your libido story would account for. And this is something to which La Rochefoucauld himself was already alive. So he offers in Maxim 274 the following observation. The charm of novelty is to love as the bloom is to fruit. It gives a luster that is easily rubbed off and never comes back. So we'll leave aside the first simple biological explanation of the trajectory that La Rochefoucauld and Smith talk about and consider another option that you might entertain, which is a simple competitive explanation of the relationship between them. It's the case that to successfully pursue a romantic relationship or to successfully pursue one's ambitious aims you have to devote a fair amount of time to the pursuit. And so, you might think, one reason it 
Is the case that if you make the transition from love to ambition, you might not go back again. It's just you've got limited temporal resource, only so many hours in the day, and so you can't devote to both the ambitious pursuit and the romantic pursuit the time that is required for each of them to flourish. And this particular explanation has an advantage over the last one, which is that it highlights the competitive aspect of the relationship between the two. But it doesn't capture the direction claim that Smith and La Rochefoucauld are interested in, right? The simple competition story should just highlight for us that it's hard to shift from either of these to the other of these because we've got limited resources. It doesn't explain why it would be harder to shift from ambition back to love. Furthermore, it's the case that the same kind of dynamic is going to be prominent within ambition itself and within love itself. Competition between any two loves should work in the same sort of way. Similarly, competition between any two ambitions should work in the same way. You're not likely to be able to launch the next great startup and be a Tony Award-winning playwright and be the next occupant of number 10 Downing Street, all within the space of the next 12 years, right? It just is the case that any of these projects will take a greater investment of time. So we've got the same kind of tensions between different ambitions and between different loves that we have between ambition and love on the simple competitive explanation. And we don't get an account of why it is that Smith and La Rochefoucauld seem to be onto something when they suggest there's something particularly challenging about shifting from ambition back to love. So to come up with a more satisfying account, we need to dip in a little more deeply to what exactly we're talking about when we're talking about love and when we're talking about ambition. Now, love is used, the English term, to cover any number of conditions. I love feijoas. Anyone had a feijoa fruit? Great, so it's awesome, right? But it's not something that I can describe to any other person in the room. It, it doesn't taste quite like any other fruit I've had. It's a fruit that's quite prolific in New Zealand, apparently originates in South America, and the ones that you can rarely find in a grocery store here will be sad, pale comparisons to the actual deal. I also love a really good novel, and I found one today that I'm looking forward to reading on the plane home. I love live performances of classical music and folk, and I love recordings of rock. I love my children and my wife, and our pets, and New Zealand. And I love watching the Tory party pull itself apart at the seams. <laughs> now, obviously, I don't mean the same thing by all of these uses of love. So I'm just going to narrow the scope to talk about a few kinds of love that take persons as their object for the next few minutes. Smith, recognizing that love covers a multitude of sins, or conditions at any rate, um, distinguishes between different kinds of love in a way that is similar to a move that you find in some of La Rochefoucauld's maxims. Namely, he 
describes a difference between a kind of passion that has its origin in the body and a kind of passion that has its origin in the imagination and particularly in ideas that the imagination entertains. What's distinctive about a passion that has its origin in the body? Well, it begins with a sensation or a bodily disposition, he suggests. And the reason he's interested in this is because, as you know, his story about the admirable and the good is built around the kinds of conditions with which spectators can readily sympathize. But bodily passions aren't those kinds of things. A spectator cannot readily enter into bodily passions. And once gratified, these kinds of passions tend to cease to be agreeable. A paradigm case of a bodily passion would be hunger for Smith. So it's the case that if I notice that Helen is hungry, I can't sympathetically become hungry on her behalf or along with her. I can, I can hope that she finds a meal soon. I could be concerned about whether she'll find sustenance in the near future, but merely sympathizing with her condition won't get me to feel hunger. He thinks the same thing is going to be true with respect to sexual desire. So seeing that someone is the object of another person's sexual desire and sympathizing with their condition won't generally make their object of sexual desire an object of sexual desire for you, at least not sympathetically. There might be other ways to get there for teenage boys who get caught up in competitions with one another, but then lust is just working directly, not sympathetically, to the object of desire. Passions which take their origin from the imagination, by contrast, begin with an idea. A spectator can enter into them, and unlike an appetite, they don't end when satisfied. And Smith thinks that most of the loves that we talk about, romantic loves, parental loves, loves between friends, etc., are going to be passions which have their origin in the imagination. Now, sketching the terrain in this way is a useful place to start, but if you try and precisify the account in any way, you quickly find that the distinction between these two categories doesn't seem to work for at least the kinds of loves that Smith is talking about and with which I'm going to be concerned. Why is that? Well, paradigmatic instances of the love that Smith takes to originate in the imagination routinely start with the triggering of bodily dispositions. So an infant's love for its caregivers is triggered well in advance of the conceptual acquisition that would be required for their love to have its origin in an idea. And those physiological underpinnings don't go away once the imagination is online. So even if you want to say they don't love the other until the conceptual is doing some work, which seems like a plausible place to draw lines, nevertheless, it looks like the originating condition is still a physiological one. Or if we take grown-ups who have acquired conceptual abilities, it's the case that when you have a new infant, your body does all kinds of cool stuff to ensure that you bond with that child. The triggering mechanism is, again, a deeply physiological mechanism. And 
for lots of parents, the abstract orientation they had toward the infant doesn't really become something that they recognize as the love they have for their child until that physiological condition kicks in. Often fathers will describe this as part of their experience, not having had the advantage of carrying the child for several months in their womb in order to connect with it. There are other disadvantages that I recognize, um, so don't get me wrong in suggesting it's an advantage. It's an advantage in this respect, at any rate. And even when it comes to romantic love, the thing that sparks the chemistry that you end up having with another person is deeply physiological. It's not merely conceptual. And the physiological doesn't go away when the conceptual is introduced. So speaking about these loves just in terms of their origins seems like it presupposes things about how our bodies work or how our minds work that draws too neat and tidy a distinction between them when it comes to loves. So to come up with a better way of carving up the landscape, we need to dig into the phenomenal qualities and the conceptual content of love. At this point, I'm going to part ways with Smith and march out an account of love that I've marched out and defended in greater detail elsewhere, but I'll try and show ways in which it's still consistent with the story that Smith tells. Here's a quick and dirty summary of the kinds of loves I want to talk about that will include parental loves, will include companionate stages of romantic loves, will include um, the kinds of loves that we have for friends, etc. So one of the distinctive qualities of loving in the way that I want to talk about is that you delight in the beloved. You think it's good that they are and that you get to be where they are. You see them in some way as good. It need not be moral goodness that you're responsive to. Nevertheless, there's something you celebrate in their existence and your access to and opportunity to be with and around that existence. It's also the case that the kinds of loves I want to talk about are concerned in a way that extends beyond the concern of the average passerby with the happiness or the misery of the beloved. So Troy Jollimore explains this concern as follows. He says, to see with love's vision is to see the rest of the world to some degree through his, that is the beloved's eyes. To allow his values, judgments, and emotions to have an effect on your perceptions, similar in important ways to the effect they have on his. A, a characterization like this captures roughly what Smith thinks the imagination does. We sympathize with the perspective of the other and enter into their cares and concerns. And so in virtue of loving the other, we come to delight in their successes and we come to grieve at their losses. When my daughter goes through her first heartbreak, I feel both sadness with her and anger toward the person who's broken her heart, etc. There are just a range of emotional experiences to which I'm opened up in virtue of loving this being that I wouldn't necessarily have been open to independently of this. There's also characteristic of the kind of love I want to talk about, a desire to have that reciprocated. You don't just want to love them from a distance in an unrequited fashion. 
the full satisfaction of the kinds of loves I'm talking about involve that same sort of attention being returned to you. And finally, the loves I want to talk about involve a desire to share experiences with the beloved. When good things happen, you want to be able to experience those good things with them or at least be able to tell them about them, etc. Now, it's common in literature on the emotions to distinguish between occurrent emotions and dispositional emotions. Occurrent emotions pick out the emotions you feel in a particular moment. Dispositional emotions refer to the emotions that you still have, even though you might not be feeling them right now. So maybe it's the case that your neighbor routinely throws loud, drunken parties um, the night before you have important business meetings. And so over several years' time, you've built up a healthy level of resentment. Maybe use healthy in scare quotes here. Even though moments ago you weren't thinking about your neighbor and thus you weren't feeling resentful toward them, now that I've reminded you of them, it's back, right? And you don't see this or experience this resentment as a new emotion. You merely experience it as a reconnection with a long-standing emotion that's been there for a few years' time. Some emotions tend to be just a current. So schadenfreude is probably like this. It occurs, you might experience it as something bad happens to the other party, but it's not as though you've got a long-standing schadenfreude um, toward a particular individual. You just may have several occasions to experience it. Delight is also like this. It's the sort of thing that you experience in the presence of a good, but it tends to have a short lifespan, and you might experience delight again on a few occasions, but as the good moves further into the past, it's less likely that we'll describe whatever you feel when you're reminded of it as delight, and more likely that we'll pick some other emotion in the good register when it comes back. Love, if it's only a current, probably isn't love or isn't the kind of love I want to talk about. Love has a duration to it that lasts beyond the moment that we characteristically say persists even when I don't happen to be thinking of the beloved. I still love friends of mine from California whom I haven't seen in several years and about whom I wasn't thinking until just a moment ago, right? Now, dispositional emotions are rooted somehow in your psyche in a deeper way than current emotions. And the same is true for traits of character. And astonishingly little work has been done to try and distinguish between traits of character and dispositional emotions, or even to talk about the relationship between traits of character and dispositional emotions. But certainly, if we've got dispositions that shape someone's identity and shape our normative evaluation of them in the way that traits of character typically do, then it looks as though love is going to be a candidate for one of these. So long-standing loves can become robust parts of your identity, such that if a devoted and loving mother were to suddenly cease to love her children to whom she's been devoted for the past 18 years, there would be something strange that would stand in need of an explanation, and there would be a way in which we'd 
think she's a different person in some sense now than she was before. Sorry, I've progressed beyond where I wanted to go. I'm going to leave love to one side and turn our attention now to ambition. The kinds of things that we talk about with the label ambition aren't quite as diverse as the things we use love to pick out, but they're still pretty diverse. Any big project we might describe as an ambitious project and the pursuit of it we might describe as ambitious. I'm going to use a narrow subset of that diverse range of things that the English term picks out and focus in on the kinds of things that La Rochefoucauld and Smith are interested in. La Rochefoucauld is almost exclusively interested in the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of power, and the pursuit of preeminence. And Smith follows La Rochefoucauld in at least beginning with those. It won't be the end of his story, but it's not a bad place for us to start. So he says, those great objects of self-interest of which the loss or acquisition quite changes the rank of the person are the objects of the passion properly called ambition. Now, unlike love, which presents to us an object that is good and that we see as good in its own right, wealth and power and preeminence aren't obviously good in themselves. They're straightforward candidates for instrumental goods, right? So one question that emerges is, why would we care about these kinds of things? And Smith gives us an interesting answer to that question. He thinks, ultimately, we're interested in those things because we're interested in something else. The something else, he suggests, is honor. It's not pleasure. Usually the ambitious forego as much pleasure as they gain from their ambitious pursuits, at least of the mundane, everyday sort. Nor is it ease, because if ease were what they wanted, there are more mundane and less onerous routes they might traverse. What they really want is they want to be seen by other people to have accomplished something and to be seen as having an improved standing because of what it is that they're accomplishing and who they're becoming through the accomplishing of it. And Smith picks up on something that, well, lots of contemporary psychological studies have suggested is central to the experiences of the ambitious. Frequently there's a motivation either to achieve some good so as to be seen well by others, or at least to avoid being seen as a failure by others. So either the desire for positive appreciation or at least the desire to avoid negative assessment and disesteem are motivational for lots of those that we characteristically recognize as ambitious. This can appear, of course, in problematic forms as with pathological narcissists, <coughs> Trump, um, or it can appear in healthier forms where we just care about the other people around us and what they think of us. That kind of caring about what they think of us is, I think, following nice arguments laid out by Cheshire Calhoun, something that we ought to care about. And there's something wrong if we don't. So 
The kind of motivation that Smith is pointing to need not be problematic, although obviously it can come in problematic forms. If we just get their honor, though, and we don't think deep down we deserve it, we won't enjoy it as much. So Smith takes a further step and suggests it's not just having the honor or the appreciation of those around us. It's also deserving that kind of respect and admiration that is the object of the ambitious aim. So, the kind of thing we're interested in as Smith is talking about ambition then is something that looks like it's going to be well-suited to a long-term character trait. And usually when we talk about ambition, that's what we mean. Unlike love, where we can use it to pick out both an occurrence emotion and a trait of character, we usually reserve ambition just for a trait of character. As Smith is using it, however, it picks out both an emotional condition that can be an occurrence emotion, and it picks out a deeper dispositional trait that can be a trait of character. And I'll follow Smith in that kind of usage. How then might we think these two conditions that I've sketched all too briefly are related to one another? Well, here are some options that may not be exhaustive, but I'm getting close anyway. So it may be that they're wholly unrelated, or that they're the same, or that one is a subset of the other. None of these strike me as plausible, so I'll just strike them out. We can come back to that if you think otherwise in the question time. A fourth option is that they share a structure or that they share a key component. I'm going to argue that for generic loves and ambitions, this is going to be true for them. But then there are particular loves and particular ambitions of one stripe or another where one of them may initiate the other or they may be oppositional. And finally, I want to suggest there are some other variants of love and ambition where they're mutually supporting and being mutually supporting entails that one supports the other. So seven and eight will be satisfied. Okay, so what kind of structure do I think they share? Well, I need to introduce some terminology to identify this structure. I'll introduce three terms. One is a stage-setting emotion, one is a subordinate emotion, and one is a master emotion. What do I mean by a stage-setting emotion? Well, lots of emotions, including love, reorient our space of concerns, opening us to a range of other emotions. I was just talking about the kinds of joys and anxieties and sadnesses to which I'm opened up in virtue of loving my daughter, right? That's when the relationship between us is going well. When the relationship goes badly, there are other emotions to which I'm opened up in virtue of my loving, namely guilt or defensiveness or resentment or dismay, etc. The emotions that are listed in the bullet points under love are all what I want to call subordinate emotions. Love is a stage-setting emotion in that it sets the possible emotional landscape a particular way, excluding some emotional candidates from the stage altogether, and 
its relationship to other emotions is such that it's natural to think of them as waiting in the wings, ready to be ushered in at their cue. Most emotions can be stage-setting emotions. Some emotions set a very small stage. Schadenfreude, to return to that, seems like one. It has disappointment waiting in the wings if perhaps the suffering of the other ends too quickly. Um, but there aren't too many other emotions that are in the neighborhood. And furthermore, it tends to be at odds with other normative commitments that we have. Delight, similarly, sets a fairly small stage. It's not at odds with other normative commitments, typically. Nevertheless, it tends to be short-lived, and thus it doesn't set the landscape for lots of other emotions to do work for it. But some emotions not only set a very large stage, but they present the world as having normative qualities that are the kinds of qualities you might conceivably build a life around. So because of this, they're motivationally powerful. They recruit lots of other emotions to help out with them. And they're suited to becoming fixed traits. Both love and ambition are not only stage-setting emotions, I want to suggest they're also master emotions who set a large stage, recruit lots of subordinate emotions to their service, and present the world as normative, such that things are there to be celebrated and or things are there to be opposed in virtue of the goods that love presents in its beloved or in the relationship and the goods that ambition presents in its pursuit. So love presents things as valuable, it's temporally extended, and it's linked to a number of natural virtues, making it a plausible candidate for building a large normative framework around. Smith points to a few, but we could add others to the list. So he highlights that there is in love a strong mixture of humanity, generosity, kindness, friendship, esteem. The same goes for ambition. So it presents certain things as valuable. It is temporally extended, and it's linked to a number of natural virtues. Different ones, but nevertheless, several of them. Smith lists prudence, steadfastness, industry, and discipline as natural virtues that are there and supporting ambitious pursuits. Okay, so that's the structural similarity between ambition and love. Now, I promised there was also a shared component. And the shared component, we've already seen a gesture toward in Smith's characterization of ambition in particular. So it's the desire to be the object of positive attention. We see this obviously in love. There is a satisfaction, Smith suggests, in the consciousness of being beloved, which to a person of delicacy and sensibility is of more importance to happiness than all the advantage which he can expect to derive from it. It's not instrumental delight, in other words. It's intrinsic delight. And when talking about ambition, he suggests to be beloved by our brethren is the great object of our ambition. Okay, so we've got a shared structure. Both can be master emotions, recruiting lots of other emotions and presenting broad normative canvases to us. We've got a shared component, which is the approval of others, um, and the 
kind of love or honor or esteem that they might have for us. Now let's turn to the conflict that might emerge between love and ambition and the way in which one of them, love, might support the other, but not the reverse. To see why Smith and La Rochefoucauld might think there's a natural progression here, think about the story that Dickens tells us in Great Expectations. Pip meets Estella, and he's struck by Estella, wants to impress Estella in the same way that she has impressed him, and yet he recognizes that a boy of his means from his background is unlikely to secure the admiration or the esteem of a girl like her. And so he sets out on his course to prove himself so that by way of pursuing the betterment of his rank through education and the acquisition of financial means, he can impress Estella and thus have reciprocated some degree of the esteem for him that he has for her. It's easy to see how a story like this might unfold so that one's love, wanting as it does, the other's approval and reciprocation, recruits ambition to its cause, bringing ambition in as a subordinate emotion to serve the aim that, that love has laid out as the aim to be pursued. However, if ambition is to succeed, then typically the ambitious individual needs to buy into some of the normative landscape that ambition presents. If Zara wants to succeed as an academic and she finds herself just not caring at all about why exactly the Athenians lost to the Spartans, well, she's probably not going to succeed as a classicist or a military historian. If she just can't see why anyone would spend the time puzzling out the translation of linguistic fragments and trying to fit those fragments together into a picture of a life that people might have lived in an earlier era, well then, archaeology or classics or any historical literary study probably isn't going to be an area that she'll succeed in. If she's going to succeed in the betterment of her rank by the pursuit of excellence in one of these domains, she's going to need to care about some of the things and some of the truths that those pursuits require one to care about. So if you start on the path of ambition, having been led there by love, you're probably going to need to come to care about some of the goods that ambition presents to you as it sets its own stage. And with that will come the possibility of competing loyalties as you begin to care more fully and the amount of time that you devote to the ambitious pursuit curtails the time that you have for the beloved and the resentments that might emerge as a result of that dynamic if you've already won the beloved's heart, etc. It can add to the complexities that go with the relationship between ambition and love, such that it might be harder to return from ambition to love 
if you've gone a certain way down ambition's path. <coughs> Similarly, with some ambitions, it may be the case that you have to acquire some, well, unsavory character traits in order to succeed in those pursuits. And those might be antithetical to the kinds of character traits that the optimal lover possesses. All of this helps us see why there might be a tension that emerges once one makes that transition from love to ambition. But to fully see why it seems complicated to move from ambition back to love, it's useful for us to think now about how ambition works as a stage setting or master emotion. Because the stage that ambition sets doesn't readily recruit love to its cause. So think about the following statement. Because I'm ambitious, Pip thinks, I'm moved to pursue a romantic relationship with Estella. There's nothing problematic about the sentence, grammatically or conceptually, but there is something dodgy about it, right? If Estella finds out this is Pip's motivation, then there will be problems in the relationship. It's even more problematic if we replace romantic relationship with love, right? Because then it looks as though there's something genuinely antithetical that's been introduced. Love presents a relationship with the beloved as good for its own sake, whereas ambition would be presenting it merely as instrumentally good. And if we just do a quick survey, how many of you would prefer to have the beloved desire you instrumentally? Okay, you see the tension. This, I think, helps us understand then the sense that La Rochefoucauld and Smith are working with as they're trying to understand why it is that or as we're trying to understand why it is that there's this dynamic between love and ambition such that it's easy to move from one to the other, but hard to move back again. Smith offers a second kind of reason. He's not spending time thinking about the stage setting and master emotions. That's me, so don't blame him if you think it's a bad idea. Um, but Smith appeals to the admiration that both of these are seeking to suggest why it is we might have a hard time moving back again. Without spelling it out in so many terms, the underlying thought is, other things being equal, more appreciation is better than less. So, having two people appreciate you to degree N is better than having one person appreciate you to degree N. Having one person appreciate you to n plus one is better than having someone appreciate you to n. And, he thinks, having many people appreciate you to degree n is better than having one appreciate you to n plus one. Think about the performance you might give to a full room in which everyone in the room is applauding with enthusiasm at the end of your performance. Now, think about the alternate performance where one person is applauding and whistling and screaming because they really loved your performance. Between those two rooms, most of us want the first, right? That's the thought. So 
once you get a taste for the appreciation of the many, Smith thinks, it becomes harder to really find the same kick from the appreciation of the few. To this point, I've explained the puzzle that started me off, or at least I've attempted to explain the puzzle that started me off on this journey. But there are resources in the theory of moral sentiments to suggest one more strand in the discussion, a strand that Smith himself doesn't unpack, but that nevertheless we can unpack from what he says for him. And it suggests there might be a route from some kinds of ambition back to some kinds of love so that you could get a supportive or harmonizing relationship between love and ambition so that each supports the other. To see how this might be possible, we need to pay attention to another kind of ambition that Smith highlights. He suggests there are two paths ambition might take. It might pursue the acquisition of wealth and greatness, or it might pursue the study of wisdom and the practice of virtue. Who does the appreciating is going to be different for these two paths. By and large, the first path is looking for the admiration of the many, and the second is looking for the admiration of a, an elite set, namely the wise. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't end up with the admiration of the many if you pursue ambition's second path. Um, the recent climate strike suggests that at least one teenage girl pursued a path of virtue tenaciously and came to be celebrated by millions for that ambitious, virtuous tenacity. But even so, going the route of Kylie Jenner probably will get you more Instagram followers and fewer haters. So your odds are better to get the admiration of the many if you follow the first path. Why then might you choose to follow ambition's second route? Well, one reason is it's intrinsically valuable to develop virtue and wisdom. A second reason that appeals to the features that Smith has been concerned with, namely the appreciation that both love and ambition desire, is that you have a greater chance of satisfying ambition's desire. Most of us are likelier to be appreciated as a result of developing some virtues and a bit of wisdom than we are by pursuing wealth and power. One reason for this is just that kindness begets kindness, he thinks. So if to be beloved by our brethren be the great object of our ambition, the surest way of obtaining it is by our conduct to show that we really love them. It's also likely to give us a deeper satisfaction. Apologies now for the indulgent and lengthy quote. The man of the most perfect virtue, Smith suggests, the man whom we naturally love and revere the most, is he who joins to the most perfect command of his own original and selfish feelings the most exquisite sensibility both to the original and sympathetic feelings of others. The man who, to all the soft, the amiable, and the gentle virtues, joins all the great, the awful, and the respectable, that is, the virtues that go with ambition, must surely be the natural and proper object of our highest love and admiration. 
becoming the next CEO of a Fortune 500 company just deserves less admiration than becoming genuinely wise and genuinely virtuous. And so if part of what ambition desires is not just the honor of others, but also to deserve the honor of others, well, then ambition's second path is likely to deliver a deeper satisfaction. Or so he suggests. Now, that tells us how it might be the case that ambition could set a different stage. How is that then going to lead us from ambition back to love? Well, Smith suggests that there's a particular kind of love that's especially gratifying and particularly expansive, not restrained by the contingencies and good fortune of who you happen to be born related to or who you happen to go to primary school with. It's also going to be a stabler kind of relationship than the one that was built around the musical interests you had at age 12 or the movies that you happen to like in common with your best friend in high school, etc. Of all the attachments to an individual, that which is founded altogether upon the esteem and approbation of his good conduct and behavior, confirmed by much experience and long acquaintance, is by far the most respectable. In Smith's book, that's a good thing. It's one that is most easily sympathized with, and thus it's one that we can be confident others will approve of if they see that we have it in us. And as I said, it's also the one that is likely to be stabilist. The attachment which is founded upon the love of virtue, as it is certainly of all attachments the most virtuous, so it is likewise the happiest, as well as the most permanent and secure. Such friendships need not be confined to a single person, but may safely embrace all the wise and virtuous with whom we have been long and intimately acquainted. What we get then is a picture of a particular kind of ambition, the ambition to improve oneself morally and intellectually, and a particular kind of love, namely virtue friendships, friendships with others who care about developing a character of a certain sort. And this ambition and this love are mutually reinforcing. Insofar as the further I get down the path of virtuous ambition, the more likely it is that virtue friends are going to esteem me and appreciate my company and want to build a shared project in terms of a shared form of life with me. And the more I spend time with those kinds of friends, the further I'm likely to get down ambitious, virtuous ambitions road in its pursuit of the development of my own character and virtue. This kind of relationship then between one kind of friendship and the love that is embodied therein and one kind of ambition looks as though you could have a route from ambition back to love or perhaps um, a route where ambition walks alongside love to reinforce it. Let me end with one last remark, which is that Smith gives us a particular story about love where love potentially expands in its scope. We begin with those we happen to be born related to. And then it expands out to nearby acquaintances whose lives we touch. 
This kind of love, he suggests, can expand out further, insofar as it can be directed not only to those with whom we're personally acquainted, but it can also be directed to those of whom we've learned from others. It can extend, then, beyond the narrow confines of my biography and the bit of the planet I happen to have occupied to encompass a number of others who share this concern and this pursuit in different times and different places, not just in this time and this place. Our society, however, isn't especially well designed to foster those kinds of relationships. It would be the case that if we really valued those kinds of friendships, we might have different immigration laws than we currently do, where it's possible to immigrate with family, but it's not possible to immigrate with friends. And our other institutional structures might be slightly different than they are if we really cared about fostering these kinds of friendships. The hospitality industry is well designed for romantic relations. It's well designed for ambitious pursuits. It's not well designed to create spaces for friends to build and foster their relations. You've got the bar or the casino, perhaps, but there are only so many hours you can spend in either of those places before it has adverse effects on your character and the character friendship suffers. So if we took seriously this expanding picture and this kind of ambition and this kind of love, we might have reason to redesign some of our political and social institutions to give them more space to flourish. All right, with that, I'll shut up and look forward to your questions. <laughs>